Good morning. Is this thing on? Good morning, everybody. Today we're going to be in Genesis 5 through chapter 6, verse 8. And uh, I'm opting out on all the begats this morning. I, I thought, you know, they really want to hear me pronounce names this morning like Kenan and Enosh and Mahalalel. But I felt like it would appeal to my vanity to just go through all those lists. So I'm going to start reading today. In chapter 6, verse 1 through 8, and we're going to go back and talk about a few of the people in the genealogy there of Adam. And at this point in the Genesis narrative, we're moving along at a pretty brisk rate. In fact, the, the tally, the literal tally of the number of years from Adam till the next episode in uh, what happens in Genesis is about 1,656 years. So a lot of time takes place over the next chapter or so. At least in our reckoning, according to the ages of these folks, it's just like two generations. But for us, 1,656 years is a long time. Like, if you subtract that from our current day, that puts us back before the Middle Ages, like in the early beginning of the church. So it's quite a lot of time. And the, the story, though, as far as mankind goes, it doesn't get a lot better for us because things just seem to spiral and get worse and worse. So as we look at human beings, they don't get any better since the murder of, of Abel. But if you look at from the standpoint of God and his dealings with man, uh, the beauty of his patience and his goodwill towards mankind only gets better and better. So I'll begin reading in Genesis chapter 1, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, or on the land, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you will help us to understand your word. I pray that we'll understand your grace, that we'll be open to receive it. I pray, Lord, we will be convicted of our trespass and sin, repent to you, and that we will be continually made anew and afresh in the image of yourself. Father, help us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the important things to note in the part that I did not read yet, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So one of the things that's interesting to mention here is that in chapter 5 we have another brief summary of the creation account of God creating Adam and male and female in his image. 
And as is interesting here, it says here that, that man and male and female are made in his likeness and image. And it says that when Adam had Seth, that Seth was made in his likeness and image. Now, one of the questions is then, what does the writer mean by that? Is Are they no longer made in the image of God? And the answer is yes. What they're what the writer is teaching here is that when Adam had children, they are made in the same likeness and image that he was made in. So we are all made in the likeness and image of God. Every single person on the face of the earth bears the likeness and image of God. No matter what race, culture, creed, we all bear the image of God. And therefore, we are to be treated with honor and respect because, not because of what we've done, but because of whose image we bear. And if we forget that, as I've said a few weeks ago when we talked about being made in the image of likeness of God, horror ensues. It is, it is a cardinal, terrible, chief, ugly sin to deny the image of any of God's people. Anyone who is a human being is made in the image of God. And we are all equal in that regard. Another interesting thing to see here, and this, this is just interesting to help you think about the Bible and the writing of it, because we don't often uh, look at the details maybe like we should to help us put these things together. But if you'll notice in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. The book of the generations of Adam. You ever notice that word there, book? Does that mean Genesis is about the generations of Adam? That this is what it's about? It's one way to look at it. It's an interesting uh, detail in the sense it may give us some insight into where Moses got his stories from. One of the things that I like to think about, when you have you ever thought about how did Genesis, I'm sorry, how did Moses write Genesis? How did he write the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Have you ever thought about it? Do you think that he sat somewhere on a hillside and had him a quill, piece of parchment, and God said, God just dictated to him the words of the Pentateuch? Is that how you think it worked? I don't think that's how it worked, and I think that this passage here gives us a little hint about how it worked. This is the book of the generations of Adam. I think that Moses had sources that are no longer existent that he used and that the Holy Spirit superintended for him to write these words. And that starts to make sense about how we have the creation story and then we have the creation story of Adam and Eve, and now we're having another summary of it, that Moses had a collection of works which he used under the superintending power of the Holy Spirit to write the Bible. Now, why is that important? What is the difference does that make? Because I want you to think of Moses more as a scholar than as a mystic. And the reason that that is important is because it makes you like Moses. Moses was not sitting starry-eyed under some tree somewhere being dictated uh, most of the scripture, just God saying, okay, we're going to get started with some more scripture today. Write this down. This is the book of the generations of Adam. This is the book of the generations of Adam. No, I think it's more like Moses had a big desk that his servants had to carry around, his buddies, and he had all these drawers, and, and his desk was, I like to think, messy like mine, and he had books piled up over here and scrolls and stuff that he'd got from Egypt or wherever, and he's using these to put together the story of the Bible as God superintends him. You say, really? That's what you think? That's what Luke did when he wrote his gospel. When he writes to the most excellent Theophilus, and he says, most excellent Theophilus, I've researched this, spoken to witness, and gotten things. He read the other gospels as he wrote his gospel account there in Luke. And it was inspired. So be like Moses. He's not mystical, have some sort of connection to God that you wouldn't have. 
No, now in the new covenant, we all have the Spirit of God. So what we should do, we're not going to write inspired scripture, but you ought to study and work like Moses, a scholar of the Bible and of the Word. So he had a book, I think. I think he had a book, and I think that book was called The Generations of Adam. And this is where he got that. Because remember, thousands of years have passed before Moses gets to this point. So where did all this info come from? Maybe we'll dig up the book of the generations of Adam one day. That would be crazy. Scholars be going nuts all over the earth. It would be wonderful. So Moses was a scholar guided by the Holy Spirit, and he writes down this account of what happened to Adam and the generations who came after him. And the picture that is painted is very bleak indeed. It's a bleak picture of humanity punctuated by a few highlights. So let's just look at the happy highlights for now. First of all, happy to tell you that even though Adam's children wound up to be a bunch of sinners and murderers and wicked people, God took care of them, and he knew all their names, and he wrote them here in this book. Otherwise, you wouldn't even know about them. You wouldn't know about Seth. You wouldn't know about Enosh, and you wouldn't know about Kenan and the rest. God wrote them down, took care of them because he loved them. So that's one positive thing before we get into the wickedness of people. Another happy thing is that there were people who walked with God in this day. There was a guy named Enoch. There's some wild stuff, by the way, here. We haven't even got to the sons of God and the daughters of men. I know that you are anxiously awaiting the absolute, 100% perfect interpretation of that passage coming right up. Some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all are going, I bet he says it. Maybe it's angels. I don't know. Anyway, so here we go. Enoch, strange thing. I say it's strange because I know of nobody else like this in the history of the world except for Elijah, maybe. Enoch lived 65 years old. He had Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. He fathered Methuselah. Uh, After he fathered Methuselah 300 years, he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now that's weird. Uh, because that don't ever happen, because everybody else is very emoted, and that, that is uh, Hebrew for, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. If you go through the genealogies, everybody's dying, and all of a sudden, Enoch just isn't anymore because God took him. And that is good. So, there's hope for you yet. Maybe one day, you will be walking with the Lord in the cool of the day, and the Lord will say to you, let's just go to my house, and you'll get to go like Enoch. However, do not hold out great hope for that, for the only other person who ever got to go was Elijah. He got to go up in the chariots of fire. Two people. Sorry. So you're going to have to be super spiritual to get that heavenly cart ride. But the Lord did. took Enoch. He was walking with him, and one day just said, come home with me. And so there he went. Off you go. That's a beautiful story. So there were people who were walking with the Lord. And there's one more thing that you might miss in the details of this. If you're not paying close attention, it's easy to miss. In verse 29, 28, 29, Lamech, the father of Noah, says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And his name was Noah. So the grace in that is not only did Enoch walk with the Lord, but Lamech, Noah's father, was still looking forward to the promise of the undoing of the curse that had come upon mankind when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. So there are people in these passages 
who are looking forward to the hopeful promise that God has given that one day he will send a son to crush the head of the serpent. And Lamech was hopeful that Noah would be that son. Now, Noah turns out not to be the one who crushes the head of the serpent, but he is the one through whom the hopes of mankind rested as he sat in that ark while the rest drowned in the wrath of God. So why did that wrath of God come? Well, there was an increase of wickedness. So I want to talk to you a little bit. This is not really preaching right here. This is teaching because this is a hard passage. Because some strange stuff happens. Here's one of the strange stuff that happens. Men began to multiply on the face of the land. That's not strange. Daughters were born to them. Also not strange. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took their wives any as they chose. Now that might start to get strange for you. Because you've read elsewhere, like in Job, where the sons of God means angels, right? And so you're like, wait a minute. Now we're, we've hit fantasy territory. Now we got angels coming down and breeding with human beings and making Nephilim. What's a Nephilim? I don't know. But it sounds to me like some sort of hybrid person. It's okay. Lots of people think that's what it means. I do not, however, think that's what this means. I'm sorry. I think there's an easier explanation, and I don't actually like the other explanation. But there are lots of my brothers and sisters who disagree with me. I'm perfectly fine with them being wrong about that. (laughs) What I think is happening here, okay, I'm going to reveal the mystery. It's sort of like seeing the magician's trick behind the thing. Chapter and verse was not always here. And so what I think happens, if you just remove the chapter break and you say, after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth, when man began to... This is just an ending to the genealogy. And all he's saying is that men and women were multiplying on the face of the earth. They were the sons of God. Remember in this same chapter when he said that God made Adam in his image and likeness, and all the people born after Adam were also made in his image and likeness. These were the sons of God... And now it's possible that the sons of God means the, the godly line of Seth and the daughters of men were those who were uh, not following and worshiping the one true God, maybe after the line of Cain. That's a possibility. But the scripture here sort of leaves it ambiguous. And so what I think happens is you should have chapter 5 ending at verse 4 and then a new thought comes. Wickedness happens upon the face of the earth. Though the Nephilim does mean fallen ones, so some sign of bad stuff was happening. So what I like about this is the Holy Spirit just sort of brushed over some sort of history that I think would have made a very riveting novel to read. What are the Nephilim? What are these mighty men? They were men of old, men of renown. What did they do, y'all? What was their renown? I don't know. I don't have the foggiest idea. Oh, well, we'll find out in heaven, I guess. What we do know, though, is that these mighty men of old, this is sort of a way to say men of renown. David had his men of renown. This meant that they were warriors. And I think what is going on here is that as the sons and daughters of men multiplied on the face of the earth, sin multiplied more, and these men of renown were making war and havoc all over the place. There was war. There's no other reason to have mighty men of renown unless there is war. And so wickedness increased on the earth. Verse 5. 
The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is total depravity on a large scale. So one thing not to think is that after the flood that this ceased to be the case. There is still wickedness in the hearts of men and women continually. It is something that grieves the heart of God then. It grieves the heart of God even today. So this is one reason I don't think that this is angels and men is because we don't get to blame our depravity on angel hybrid mix of human beings. Not to mention that we don't even know if angels really have corporal bodies like we do that they could even procreate in the way human beings do. So we can't blame it on angels, fallen angels. Our depravity is our own, and we've got to own that. When we say that we are totally depraved, it does not mean that you're as bad as you could possibly be. What total depravity means is that before we come to Christ, the only thing that we do is sin. It doesn't mean we sin as much as we can, but sin is all that we do. And why is that? Well, that's because every single thing that we do before we are Christians, we do not do it to the glory of God and we do not do it by faith. And so even when it looks like we are doing a good deed, we do it for our own praise and glory to magnify our own names and not to magnify the name of God. And so every single thought and intention of our heart is only sin because we only do it for us. That's what sin is. And so basically, if you want to look at it this way, maybe a simple way to think about what sin is, how that works, it means we're taking all the stuff that God gave us, trying to take it for ourselves and never giving him any thanks or credit for any of it. It is grievous to the heart of God that we do not give him the glory for the things that were his. The wickedness of mankind is unchecked. It is one of the saddest, maybe, saddest passages in all of Scripture. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And again, remember we were talking about Genesis. This is a thematic issue. And we can talk about this in the flood because I'm going to give you some thoughts about the flood. We need to talk about that. But this word here, again, translated earth is aritz, which is 90% of the time in the scriptures translated land. We've been talking about the land which God prepared for his people from Genesis chapter 1. So the people who live in his land are acting like a bunch of wicked people, and he is sad that he put them there. And as you think about the thematic passages, thematic uh, issues of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the rest of the Bible, what always happens in the land? If they are wicked, they are what? Cast out of the land, or they're slaughtered in the land. They're, they're people come and get them, they go to exile to the east. It's the same thing. People in the land are being wicked, and they're about to be judged most terribly. Their heart is evil continually. And look, it says that God was sorry. The Lord was sorry that he had made them. Verse 4, And the Lord was sorry, or grieved, your translation may have, that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. This teaches us something about the complex emotional life of God which we don't grasp fully. We can't. Because God, we know, here's here's what I want to say. You look at God's sovereignty and that he knew everything, right? If he didn't know everything, he's not God, he's not omniscient, but he did know everything. So he knew full well when he created Adam and Eve 
they would fall, and that the wickedness would get to this point. And so you would think if he already knew that these things were happening, why would he be sad when he saw it? Here's the answer. I'm not sure how that works. But I know that what God, and the purpose of putting this here is to know that God really feels it when we sin. It hurts him, even though he knows it's going to happen. Even though he has always known it was going to happen. For him, I'm not even sure it's proper to say he knew it was going to happen. Everything is before the eyes of God always. And this is still the case to this day, as Robert read this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. What does Paul caution us against? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It's the same thing that was happening in Genesis chapter 6. We still grieve the heart of God. Wickedness is still pervasive all over the face of the earth. If you have Twitter and Facebook, you are more aware of wickedness than at any point in our history. Now, they eventually found out about wickedness happening, but you can find out about it instantly. There is wickedness everywhere. Just in the last... I don't know when the Syrian civil war began, but in the last, oh, five or six years, the estimate of the United Nations is that 400,000 civilians have been killed in that war, some of them by chemical warfare. And now then we're in it. I don't know to what extent, but there it is. And some of us get outraged. This is just as a side note. This is how messed up our moral thinking is. We got outraged when the civilians were hit with chemical weapons. And that is an outrage. It is a horror. (laughs) What's the difference between that and a 50 caliber machine gun round? The children are still dead, brothers and sisters. Why are we just now getting upset? It's bad. I'm not saying even we have a responsibility to do what. All I'm saying is, is that if you look at a bird's eye view of God and what's going on in his earth, The wickedness of man is everywhere, and the Spirit of God is grieved. It's bad. It goes on today like then. And so the question that should start coming to our mind is, as we're about to discuss the wrath of God, and he says here, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm done. They're gone. Why doesn't he do it today? Things didn't get much better. It's demonstrating the mercy and grace of God. And look, he says here another question to ask yourself. I will blot out, blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. See, there it's land. Same word, Aretz. I don't know. It's slightly aggravating that sometimes they translate it land, sometimes earth. But that's because I'm a nerd. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of heaven, for I'm sorry that I've made them. Why would he blot out the, the, the birds? What did they do? Why are the animals and creeping things getting wiped out? What did they do? They didn't do anything. But we were supposed to be the stewards of all the, the world. And when the world fell into chaos, it was our fault. The world is in bondage with us. The creation itself groans for the redemption of the sons and the daughters of God. This whole place is fallen. And the Lord said, I'm done. I'm going to wipe it out. So our sin, listen, your sin and mine, it has far-reaching consequences. It affects things that you don't even know it affects. 
And I'm not going to tell you what those things are because I don't even know. I just know that when you are not patient, not kind, when you hold grudges and do bitterness and do wickedness and selfishness and do not give God's glory, when we behave this way, it affects everything, even the creation itself. It is messed up. It is bad. And so, know that when you sin, you don't only harm yourself. You harm those around you as well. We worry about this sort of sin. I'll, I'll put it in a way that parents can understand and, and students. Do you worry about your kids with peer pressure? Is that a worry you might have for your children? What is peer pressure but systematic sin? What is peer pressure but the introduction of sin into your child's life through a group that pressures them to behave the same way? You worry about what your kids look at on Snapchat? You worry about whether or not they're seeing pornography in school? Somebody's going to try to share it with them. How will they react? That's peer pressure. That's how one person's sin begins to affect other people. And this, is, this kind of sin permeates systems of government. It permeates how we treat one another. It permeates how we perceive one another. This is what sin does. And what happens to people who are unaware, of it, like you and me sometimes, we don't even know it's happening to us takes years in prayer to realize I have been complicit in peer pressure sin. It's not just for children. It happens to adults. We think we're independent of it, but we're not. This sort of far-reaching sin permeated the world in Noah's day as it permeates the world in our day. And in Noah's day, God said, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to blot out man from the face of the land. Everything on it, I'm done. And then there's verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What did he do? The question is, what did he do to get the mercy of the Lord? Do you ever see what Noah did? To find favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why Noah? I don't know. I don't know. I know it's because Noah, it's not because he was a better man than everybody else. He was a sinner just like everybody else. Noah had enough sin to perish in the flood. Noah's sons had enough sin to perish in the flood. And so did his daughters-in-law and his wife. But grace comes after the declaration. I'm going to blot them all out. And then God, for whatever reason, mysteriously bestows upon a man named Noah his grace and favor. And God is determined to save Noah from the wrath to come. Determined to do it. And as we will see throughout the Scripture in Genesis as we deal with Abraham and Lot and the city of Sodom, it is sometimes frustrating that when God does go to save people, how hard they are to save. Whether or not they listen. Whether or not they take the way out. God loved Noah and he's determined to save him. It's really interesting in Hebrew that grace, Noah's name is grace spelled backwards. I don't know if that means anything, but it looks neat. There might be a little wordplay there in the passage. Noah found grace 
or you may have favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is exactly what God is still doing to this day. If we were taking a bird's eye view at your life and mine, like we did in Genesis chapter 6, we could say that in 2018, God looked out upon the earth and he saw that the wickedness of man, that in his heart, thoughts were wicked continually. And he was grieved. And he said, I will judge the world in fire and brimstone. or consume it to ash and roll it up like a scroll. But Brad found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And was rescued from the wrath to come. That's you too. You, like a firebrand, have been snatched from the fire. And found grace in the eyes of God. All... The world will be judged and fire will rain from heaven. But we who have found grace in the eyes of the Lord will be preserved through the ark. Not made of wood, but the body of Jesus. He is our ark to escape the wrath to come. This is why Paul says over and over again that we are in Christ. So that when the fire falls, we'll be safe. Brothers and sisters, the same God of Genesis 6 is the God today whose heart is continually grieved, yet continually rejoicing that his sons and daughters have been won by his son Jesus and that every single day they are fleeing to the ark of his cross that they might be saved from the wrath to come. Now this morning I know that there are people here who are outside the ark and one day the door will close And the wrath of God will sweep those outside away. The word of the Lord is this. Come to Christ before it is everlasting too late. The heart of the Lord is grieved at our sin. But he has made a way whereby all our sins can be taken away through Jesus Christ. Now I'm not the one who said that Jesus is the ark. Peter said Jesus is the ark. That Noah was given to us for a sign to flee the wrath to come. Go to Jesus this morning and you will be saved from the flood of God's wrath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, I thank you that you showed grace on Noah's life. Noah, a sinner like myself and the rest of my brothers and sisters gathered here. We confess we are sinful people. We sin in ways in which we are not even aware. We've gone along with things we should not have gone along with. We've said things we should not have said. We have been silent when we should have spoken up. We have spoken up when we should have been silent. And so, Lord, have mercy on us as you did Noah. Just close us up in the ark of Christ. Save us from your wrath and make us like your son. If there's someone here today who does not know Jesus, Lord, have mercy on them and open the door to salvation for them and prompt them to go in by the power of the Spirit. Change their heart by the power of your Spirit. Bring them from darkness to light that they might be saved. 